You're listening to episode 100 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. This episode really crept up on us. It's so exciting to reach 100 episodes. And if you're listening to this and you're a regular listener, I'd love you to reach out and introduce yourself if we haven't already met. I feel as though I know so many of you personally already, but it really would be a special 100th episode gift if you reached out and shared your thoughts on the show. My email is in the show notes. As we reach this milestone, I'm of course thinking about what comes next for Goodwill Hunters. Do we keep doing what we're doing? Do we change the format? Who knows? It's all ahead of us. But in the meantime, and after a big budget week and a lot of aid commentary, I'm really pleased to share this episode with Alan Beam with you. Alan Beam is head of the International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. In this episode, we discuss why aid is a human security issue and the relationship between aid and foreign affairs. Alan is a brilliant thinker, writer and speaker, and I thoroughly enjoyed learning from him in this interview. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'd like to personally thank you for all of your continued support of Goodwill Hunters. From 27 to 30 October, the Development Networks of Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, ACFID, SID and Pianco, will be hosting the inaugural Oceania Connect Digital Regional Conference. Our region faces unprecedented challenges, including COVID-19 and a changing climate. With only 10 years to 2030, now is the time to shift the power, raise the ambition and meet the Sustainable Development Goals. Oceania Connect will bring you international keynote speakers, six plenary panels and over 25 concurrent sessions to motivate, challenge and inspire. So no matter where you are, secure your ticket for this digital conference at oceaniaconnect.delegateconnect.co or find the links in the show notes below. Alan, thanks for speaking with me. I understand you've just released a new paper on foreign aid, which is very topical given today's budget day. So to begin with, can you tell me about that paper? Well, Rachel, um, Australia has been running overseas aid programs uh, since the end of the Second World War. And initially, Australia's approach to overseas aid was to look at it as a kind of secular charity, um, to, to do the right thing by poor people in, in the Pacific particularly, but also across Asia, um, and to help them have better lives, but as a way of really being kind and showing them the kind face of Australia. And we kept on running our aid program in that kind of way right through the 50s and 60s and, and into the 70s when we began to look at overseas aid as an element of foreign policy. And so overseas aid was a way not only of doing good works but of projecting Australia's interests into Asia and the Pacific now, we also had aid programs that we ran in Africa and a couple even in South America. But um, in more recent years, particularly uh, since 2013, uh, 2013, we've 
narrowed the focus of our aid program um, to Asia and the Pacific. And even more recently, we've begun reducing our aid levels in Asia and transferring those funds across into the Pacific. Now, this has been consistent with um, a general approach to overseas aid, which was to see it as uh, a cost uh, in promoting Australia's foreign interests, but a cost which has to be met against all of the competing priorities of the national budget. And that's the reason for the cuts. And so over the last uh, few decades, we've cut the aid program very substantially across the board, such that where in 2013 we were spending about 0.32 of our GNI on overseas aid, we are now spending about 0.21, so that's a very substantial cut, it's about a third um, of our overseas aid funding and projecting to go as low as 0.19 of gross uh, national income, which is a very steep decline. And so the focus on the Pacific has not just been now around our foreign policy, but even more importantly, it's been about a competition with China. Now, the point of the paper that we've written at the Australia Institute is to say a competition with China in the Pacific is really not a satisfactory basis for an aid program. Uh, a much more satisfactory basis for an aid program is to focus on the human security of the populations in Asia and the Pacific, which is a part of our national interest because the more secure the peoples of Asia and the Pacific are, the more stable Asia and the Pacific will be, and the more secure they are, the more prosperous they'll be. And the higher the levels of prosperity in Asia and the Pacific, so Australia also enjoys higher levels of prosperity. So the paper that we've produced has gone from uh, secular charity through to foreign interests, uh, you know, pushing our own foreign interests, uh, having a competition with China, to a much more sophisticated uh, approach based around the human security of peoples in the Pacific. It's interesting to hear you talk about the human security narrative, which I suppose aligns with the self-interest narrative when we talk about aid being in the interests of Australians. Is that the narrative that you prefer to use and where does the more altruistic angle fit into that? It's much broader than a, a narrow security, national security uh, narrative. Prosperity for people in the Pacific uh, is built around a number of different factors. First of all, um, they have to be healthy and educated. Um, if they're not, uh, it means that uh, an outbreak of something like COVID-19 in the very small and poor countries of the Pacific could wreak enormous havoc, which would have Australia necessarily going to their assistance at much greater cost in remediation than would be the cost of prevention. Uh, 
So it's not so much a, a security issue that is a, a defence security issue as it is an ability for Australia to get the best value for any foreign aid investments that we do happen to make in Asia and the Pacific. The second point I'd make is that the economic security of the countries of the Pacific is very largely dependent upon the ability of people living in the Pacific to access the Australian economy. We have a great number of foreign workers who come into Australia, um, working particularly in Australian agriculture and in horticulture, and those people not only make a really great contribution to our own economy, but the remittances that they send home make a very significant contribution to their own economies. So there's a mutuality in that, which is to the benefit of, of both sides. And, and perhaps the people who are listening to this podcast might like to do a really sort of small thought experiment. Uh, imagine whether or not the peoples of the Pacific would prefer to access the Australian economy, um, or would they like to go as guest workers in, say, China or Japan? And my guess is that the vast majority of people in the Pacific would far prefer to access the Australian economy, not least of all because it's an open economy and the people who come in and work in our economy, by and large, uh, are well looked after uh, and they are properly supported while ever they are in Australia and are able to come back again next year. So uh, there is a, a very substantial mutual interest in having the peoples of the Pacific able to access the Australian economy and a great interest for, for, from Australia's point of view in being able to export um, our goods and services into the Pacific. So despite such compelling arguments as the one you've just made, why has the aid budget been slashed by a third since 2013? Look, I think it's quite a profound change in the, the Australian character, frankly. Um, up until the, the mid-70s, uh, Australia really was generous in the way it set about overseas aid. But since then, we've become rather parsimonious, um, a bit tight-fisted, to put it in, I guess, harsher language. Um, not just that we want to see better value for money, because that's an argument we'll always make, and I think we should make that argument, but simply that the pressures on the budget, and particularly over asylum seekers, offshore detention, which has cost many billions of dollars, had to be funded from somewhere. And so the government, uh, that is essentially the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments, found that they preferred to find the funds from uh, overseas development assistance than to find the funds elsewhere in the budget. And so I think the, the primary reasons for transferring funding away from Asia and into the Pacific, but cutting funding substantially across the board, has to do with other government priorities, which, quite frankly, uh, have come in on top of uh, a much more profound interest that I think we should have in assisting the countries of Asia and the Pacific. 
Given your role at the Australia Institute, in your view, what is the the role of think tanks and research institutes in making the case to the Australian government and other stakeholders for having a strong aid program? Look, what, what think tanks by and large do is sort through the evidence uh, that that bears upon the sorts of decisions that governments have got to make all the time. So that at the Australia Institute, we're looking at things as different as uh, climate change, energy, taxation, uh, social security, uh, international policy, uh, national defence policy, uh, and now um, overseas development assistance policy. And we look at um, all of the statistical and other data that we can put our hands on, sort through it, and then come up with a set of evidence-based propositions that we then put out to the wider policy community. And that's what we're seeking to do at the moment with our rethinking uh, overseas development assistance. So in light of that, it is budget day. This interview won't be aired until after the budget. However, let me ask you, what are you hoping for in this budget and what are you expecting? We would always hope for a significant increase in our overseas development assistance, uh, partly because as a very wealthy nation, we have a responsibility within our own neighbourhood to ensure that our neighbourhood is peaceful, calm, prosperous, and in that broader sense, secure. I mean, when people sit around their dining room tables at home and talk about the security of their family, they're not normally worried about um, having a whole gang of thugs burst into their house and beat them up. What they're normally thinking about is whether or not they're all going to be healthy, whether they've got incomes and good jobs, if they're getting older, that they've got a good retirement plan, um, uh, that they can look forward to high standards of, of health as they get older. That's what people normally mean by security. And I think that general concept of security is one that applies particularly well in the Pacific um, and also in Asia. So what I would hope for is that we could have a government which is much more sensitive to the long-term implications of climate in the Pacific, the long-term implications of fundamental changes in the way in which the the economy of Asia and the Pacific actually works, and uh, a, a lot of sensitivity to the changing power relationships in the Pacific, but most particularly between the United States and China. So that's what we'd hope for. What are we expecting? Well, I'm afraid we're not expecting our hopes to be met. Uh, What we're expecting is uh, a continued squeeze on overseas development assistance, uh, a continued reduction in effective funding levels. We also expect that there'll be sort of continued reduplication between the various donors who work in the Pacific and and in Asia. Uh, We would expect that uh, some donors are going to continue to provide essentially facilities which go beyond the capacity of the recipients to manage. Uh, I would expect that there will still be the roads to nowhere that... um, Uh, Concierta Fieravanti-Wells pointed to at the beginning of last year, Um, just generally a a lack of effective coordination. Uh, 
So the other proposal that that we have made, and it's it's in this month's edition of Australian Foreign Affairs, is that there should be a much higher level of effective coordination between donors in the Pacific, much greater transparency in the spend and much greater accountability on the part of both donors and recipients. And the way to affect that, we suggest, is that at least annually there should be a major donors conference in the Pacific that brings them all together to identify targets, priorities, and to make sure that we don't have two or three different donors all trying to deliver the same product. Uh, We already have a high-level meeting in the Pacific um, every year attended by prime ministers uh, and heads of government, but that's much more a symbolic meeting, I think. They like to put on their floral shirts and their lovely floral coronets and walk around and, and look as though they're all happy, but what we really need is is a much more business-like approach and a rather less political approach. So that, in sum, is the, the sort of general approach that we're advocating at the moment, but without um, undue hopes about the fact that our, that our proposals uh, might get early acceptance. What are your thoughts on the different roles of managing contractors and NGOs, particularly in light of the declining proportion of the aid budget that is going to NGOs? Mm-hmm. Yes, aid to the NGOs has fallen over time. And generally speaking, NGOs are a very good vehicle for the delivery of foreign aid. What Australia has tended to do over the last decade or so is to rely much less on Australian public servants as aid personnel and to contract out to uh, for-profit contractors the delivery of Australia's aid program. And that has not always gone so very well, Uh, not least of all because if you're running a for-profit organisation with lots of foreign contractors, your your standing costs are always very high. Um, People expect to have very high standards of housing and accommodation. They expect high salaries and they expect frequent returns to Australia or whichever other country they might be recruited from. Whereas uh, in the in previous decades, when Australia had its own personnel uh, working in such posts, people went on two or three year postings. Um, they were paid as public servants. Uh, they worked very hard because uh, in the the one embassy in Asia that I worked in, which was in Kuala Lumpur, we had quite a large team of professional public servants who delivered the aid program. We had about five. Uh, These days, you're lucky to have one person, but all the rest of the business will be conducted by contractors at, I think, um, a significantly higher cost. So that's an area that I think uh, does really require some pretty significant review just to make sure that we we are getting the best bang for the buck, as people say, and that the recipients are also getting the greatest value from the funds that are being uh, invested in, in their societies. Okay, the last question I want to ask you about aid regards the split between foreign policy and aid, and sometimes it feels as though foreign policy is the shining light and aid is kind of the unwanted little sibling. 
How do you view the prioritisation of foreign policy versus aid at a government level? Yes, that's a really good question, Rachel. Uh, I think for a very long time, um, aid played second or third fiddle uh, because, remember, trade has exactly the same sort of relationship with foreign policy as aid does, and there are quite a number of external commentators who suggest that we might do well to recreate a proper trade department so that trade interests are not secondary to foreign policy interests, but rather can be fought out in the cabinet room between ministers who are equals. So it was partly for that reason that over a period of time from the 1950s through to the 1990s, we developed an independent aid agency so that while it was a portfolio agency, it ran itself largely and had government endorse its its, um, overseas aid priorities, but it got on with the business of delivering them without having an internal competition with the policy wonks who tend to dominate the business of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So you've raised a really good question. Now, there are many who think that the decision uh, made a number of years ago to fold AusAid into the department uh, can't be unscrambled, that um, AusAid is now back where it was in the same relationship with the department, that the aid branch, as it was back in the 60s, um, had with the department. And uh, I think that there are grounds for revisiting that whole decision and developing uh, a much more professional cadre of aid policy and aid program officers within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who are seen as being at least equal with those who do the more theoretical or abstract aspects of foreign policy. But the fact is that if you look at the senior levels of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade at the moment, very, very few people um, who are in the upper reaches of the SES have ever had any experience of aid delivery. And in fact, very few of them have ever been posted into, into the Pacific itself. So it's not surprising that the policy preoccupations of the department are going to be with how do we manage our relationship with the United States, how are we going to get on with Russia under uh, under the sort of the current arrangements, what about Japan now that Prime Minister Abe has stepped down, where do we go with China over time, what about Indonesia and, and Pachoko, Widodo, I mean, all of those things, of course, will continue to dominate uh, the the expression of Australia's foreign policy. At the moment, I suggest, at the expense of our aid program. And so uh, a measure of delineation uh, and, and independence of those who design and deliver aid policy and aid programs, I think, would probably be a pretty good idea. So would you like to see AusAid reinstated? Personally, I would. That would be difficult to do because governments would have to say that they'd made a mistake or something like that. Um, You'd probably have to sneak up on that, Rachel, um, and do it in a a very sort of gradual kind of way, Um, build up um, a, a strong division within the Department of Foreign Affairs and then progressively uh, give it 
more independence. And the independence doesn't come from the name it has. The independence comes from the quality of personnel who are able to drive it. Brilliant. Thank you, Alan, for your time. That was episode 100 of Goodwill Hunters brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.